Hello there, I'm Rob, and welcome to this week's edition of the Black Country Talking News for the 17th of May, 2023. Hello, and welcome to the Black Country Talking News, brought to you by the sight loss charity Beacons. We're pleased to confirm that the Talking News is now available via Alexa. Once you've enabled the Talking Newspapers skill, all you need to do is play Talking Newspapers and ask for the Black Country Talking News. Our Talking News service is also available via the free Wireless for the Blind app. It can be found on the Beacon Centre website www.beaconvision.org forward slash talking dash news. As a podcast via services such as Apple or Spotify or as a free CD, simply contact Beacon Centre on 01902 We hope you enjoy this week's edition. Reading this week, we have myself Rob, Christine, Angela, Liz, Ian, Helen, Mina, Simon, and of course not forgetting, Flashback Roger. In this week's edition we have, Local News of the Black Country, an update from Beacon, The Quiz with Mina, our latest bulletin of practical information and sight loss tips, the latest news from Wolves and West Bromwich Albion. Did you know section from Flashback Roger. The weather for the week ahead. And with the spring sunshine seemingly now set in, we have an article with some expert tips from the Hardy Plant Society, sharing knowledge about hardy perennials for your garden. Local news to start though, with Liz, Christine, Ian, but first, it's Angela. West Midlands Mayor Andy Streets said it is encouraging that other local authorities are considering joining forces with the region's Super Council. The West Midlands Combined Authority, WMCA, could expand to take on more members after initial talks were held with bosses at Shropshire and Telford and Meakin Councils. And the region's mayor, Mr Street, said their interest showed that other authorities see the WMCA as a club they want to be part of. Shropshire Council's Conservative leader, Councillor Leslie Picton, and Councillor Sean Davies, Labour leader of Telford and Meakin Council, said informal discussions had taken place with the WMCA over future plans. Full membership could bring with it access to major development funding for both councils, but would also see the county coming under the umbrella of the West Midlands Mayor. Mr Street said, I'm always up for expansion if a council were to come forward with a proposal. But we need to be really clear that no one has come forward with a proposal at this stage, not Conservative Shropshire or Labour Telford and Reekin. Labour figures in the West Midlands, including mayoral candidate Richard Parker, have accused Mr Street of trying to gerrymander next year's mayoral election by bringing more Tory voters on board. But Mr Street rejected the claims, saying, The point is that the councils must take the initiative, not me. The WMCA currently has seven full members, Dudley, Sandwell, Warsaw, Wolverhampton, Birmingham, Coventry and Solihull. Conservative-run Staffordshire County Council has ruled itself out of joining. The first of Wolverhampton's new family hubs have officially opened their doors this week. 
Low Hill Family Hub and Dove Family Hub in Penderford are among eight family hubs which will be unveiled across Wolverhampton over the next couple of months, providing hundreds of families with help and advice from conception to the age of 19 or 25 for children with special educational needs and disabilities, SEND. Wolverhampton is one of 75 areas in England to benefit from a share of investment, totalling £300 million from the government's Family Hubs and Start for Life programme to create the new Family Hubs. They will act as one-stop shops, offering guidance and advice on a range of circumstances to support families through pregnancy and beyond, including infant feeding, mental health and well-being, health visiting support and parenting classes. The hubs provide a wide range of other services, including stay-and-play sessions and birth registrations, and bring together wider wraparound services that can make a huge difference to people who need extra support, such as advice on benefits and welfare rights, getting into work, relationship building and stopping smoking. Alongside the existing hubs will be Bingley Families Hub in Penfields, Rocketpool Families Hub in Bilston, Eastfield Families Hub in Wolverhampton, Grazerley Families Hub in Whitmore and the Children's Village Families Hub in Wensfield, with the majority of hubs opening in June and July. Each family hub will be open from Monday to Friday initially, with some services offered at evenings and weekends in due course. Help and support will also be provided from other locations in the community. Councillor Chris Burden, Wolverhampton Council's Cabinet Member for Education, Skills and Work, said, A family hub is a place where children, young people and their families can go when they need support. Getting help from a family hub is simple. You can walk in, telephone or a professional can refer you. For more information, go to wolverhampton.gov.uk forward slash family hubs. You can lose your sight but still love fashion. That's the message championed by the latest edition of British Vogue, which was made available in Braille and audio formats on 5th of May for the first time in the magazine's 107-year history. The reframing fashion issue has been created in collaboration with the Royal National Institute of Blind People, RNIB, and the accessibility consultancy Tilting the Lens to recognise and celebrate the disabled community in the fashion industry. It's a historic and emotional day for people like Debbie Miller, 44, from Derbyshire, who was diagnosed with the degenerative eye condition, chronic uveitis, at the age of three. My first significant deterioration was when I was 16. It was awful. Now, looking back on it, I really struggled. My behaviour was typical of an angry teenager. I used to throw stuff, cry, be really aggro. At the time, it was driven by how I felt I looked to other people and less about what I was experiencing or worries for the future. It was the fact I had to wear really big, thick, horrible glasses to see anything at all. And I remember to get around school, I had to have a buddy to walk with me from class to class. They were a close friend, but it just sets you apart from everyone else. Debbie, who's 
RNIB's Director of Customer Experience and Engagement, has always loved fashion and still religiously buys glossy magazines, even though she can no longer read the text. I like the sense of turning the pages. It's a sense of luxury, she says. I can see colour and shapes, so I can make my way through. What frustrates me is that if I see an outfit, I can't read where it's from, how much it costs or how to get it. Debbie usually relies on her 12-year-old daughter to fill in the blanks or searches for the information online with a screen reader. So she's excited to finally have an accessible magazine. It's just not the same having to do it all online and more often than not you have to lean heavily on your family, she says. For someone with a disability, you can feel like a burden. I think it's brilliant that British folk have launched a Braille edition. I think a lot more people will consume it because I imagine there's a lot of people who are blind or partially sighted who have just written off being able to enjoy a magazine. The May edition of British Vogue is the first in a year-long campaign where all issues will be available in audio format and for Braille readers for the next 12 months. It follows in the footsteps of the Metro newspaper's Braille cover wrap, which was recognised as an innovative and dynamic achievement and scooped a major award last year. Kimberly Burrows, a London-based blind artist who recently collaborated with Warehouse to launch a range of occasion wear, plans to read British Vogue for the first time, now that it's available in Braille. She describes the latest launch as a powerful step towards inclusivity and representation in the fashion industry. By spotlighting disabled talent, trailblazers, advocates and changemakers, British Vogue is challenging the industry to take a long overdue look at the way it has historically excluded people like me, she says. This issue is an important reminder that disability is not a limitation or a barrier to beauty, creativity or success. As a blind artist with a strong interest in beauty and fashion, it is deeply encouraging and refreshing. Meanwhile, Chloe Tier, a disability blogger who started to lose her sight at the age of 18, points out how the edition has a huge symbolic significance, even for those who may not read Braille. Due to losing my sight later in life, I haven't learnt Braille. However, as someone who's visually impaired, the use of Braille is still so important to me. It signifies inclusivity towards the visually impaired community. It also challenges public perceptions around fashion and being blind. I've always loved fashion, especially the 1950s, which you could argue is iconic thanks to Coco Chanel. You can be visually impaired and enjoy fashion. It's great to see Vogue recognising and celebrating that. Up next, we hear from Helen, who of course has for us the Beacon Update. Hi everyone, it's Helen from Beacon, back with your weekly update and what a week it's been. More than 200 fundraisers turned out to show their support for the Beacon Centre for the Blind at our charity's Colour Run in Wolverhampton. The participants were blasted with brightly coloured paint powder as they made their way around the 5k course at the city's East Park, with everyone taking part receiving a medal as they finished. The event was attended by the Mayor of Wolverhampton, Councillor Sandra Samuels, OBE, who started the race after thanking all those who entered. 
The Beacon Centre's Income Generation Director, Stella Pitt, said, We're thrilled that so many people were able to join us for the Colour Run and help raise funds to support our work. It was a great event and we're delighted that everyone had such fun. Events like this and our Santa Run, which we hold in December, are so important in raising funds to support our work to help people live well with sight loss. And we can't thank people enough for their support. All the proceeds from the event will help support our charity's work. We'd like to thank everyone who took part and the wonderful volunteers as well who helped out on the day. Now, our first fishing session of 2023 is just one of the activities lined up in our community activity program this month. It's great fun and you don't need to have any experience if you'd like to join us either this month or at any of our other sessions over summer. They take place at Albrighton Moat near Wolverhampton. We can provide transport if needed. You can find out more on our website, www.beaconvision.org or call us on 01902-880-111. Now, last this week, don't forget that we've got a low vision equipment sale day coming up later this month. Taking place on Tuesday, May the 23rd, it is your chance to pick up a range of aids and adaptions that can help at home for a bargain price. So why not head along? Just drop into our centre on Wolverhampton Road East in Sedgley between 10am and 2pm on the day to discover what we have on offer. That's it for this week. I'll be back again soon. Bye-bye. Cheers that update, Helen. Up now, we're our next block of local news. And starting this one off, we first hear Christine. A new drone team has been launched to help cut traffic gridlock on the region's roads. The Transport for West Midlands scheme will see drones fly over congestion hotspots and queuing traffic at accident scenes or road closures to provide live footage enabling transport bosses to plan diversions and keep the public informed. It features a DJI Enterprise M30T drone which cost £11,000 and is capable of flying at up to 40 miles per hour and two smaller drones which can all be deployed to the skies at a moment's notice by a team of five pilots. Bosses say the images, which are relayed back to the Regional Transport Coordination Centre, RTCC, in Birmingham, help to fill gaps in coverage that can occur during busy periods. They say up-to-the-minute information can be shared over social media, with the scheme costing a fraction of installing and maintaining static CCTV cameras. The team is also set to launch the first urban trial of a remote-operated drone system in the UK, with one set to be placed on the roof of Warsaw bus station. Kerry Blakeman, drone manager for the Transport for West Midlands, said... We are constantly looking to develop the capacity and improve the quality of information available to our Transport Coordination Centre, which is why we have launched this trial at Warsaw Bus Station. The DJI Enterprise M30T drone is equipped with a thermal image camera and can fly for up to 35 minutes in rain and strong winds. The drones will also be made available to the emergency services on request footage of all drone flights can be viewed at dronesafetymap.com Six gully grids have been stolen near Wolverhampton, leading the public to question what can be done about metal thieves. The latest string of thefts comes as the West Midlands experiences a spike in the number of stolen gully grids. 
with Walsall seeing more than 400 cast-iron covers stolen in 2022. Caroline Stratful, 51, from Featherstone said, I placed the bright orange bag there just to let people know there is a missing grid. I have replaced it with cones now until the council comes to fix it. It is really dangerous. You can't really avoid it. We are quite worried that people will fall into it or they will damage their cars. We actually have a resident registered as blind in this street. If he falls in it, then it could be really dangerous. This latest reported theft comes as the West Midlands experiences a spike in the number of taken gully grids, with local councils issuing press releases requesting that scrapyards turn away the units. Caroline continued, It is a surprise, the amount that is being stolen. From what I have seen based on the number of people who have come forward, I think easily around 30 or 40 have been taken so far. We are surprised that some scrapyards are allowing them to weigh these grids in. I guess the problem might be that they are taking them in mixed loads, so they might not check. Figures show that in June 2022, a total of 32 of the metal covers were stolen from around Staffordshire in just a few months, leading to Staffordshire police urging people to report incidents of grid thefts. Caroline continued, They're astronomical figures, really. The impact that these thefts must have on the budget to replace these grids each year. I could imagine it being really difficult to fix. You would have to monitor the scrapyards or possibly change the grids to a more secure version. But then everything else has to change, really. It's a difficult situation. Car, bus and motorcycle buffs are revving up for a celebration of the region's transport heritage this summer. Dozens of historic vehicles will be on show at Bantock Park on July the 16th for the inaugural Wolverhampton Transport Festival. It will be the first major exhibition organised by the Museum of Wolverhampton and South Staffordshire Trust, formed a year ago to promote the history of the area. Chairman Andy Sloan, who is organising the event with his father Tony, said he expected 50 vehicles made in and around the city would be on display. We're hoping to have 8 to 10 Sunbeam cars, 12 Norton Commandos and a very rare 1928 HRD motorcycle, he said. There will also be a 1936 Guy ambulance and a Guy van, while a Guy bus will provide tours taking passengers to the site at the former lorry bus and car factory at Fallings Park. Visitors will also be able to take a ride on the miniature railway, which is normally based at Bagridge Country Park in Sedgley. There will also be exhibitions inside Bantock House relating to clubs and organisations which promote the region's transport history. There will also be a display relating to the Great Western Railway's Stafford Road works. Admission will be free, although there will be a small charge for the bus and train rides. Andy said he hoped it would become an annual event. There used to be an annual steam and transport gala, but there hasn't been anything for a few years, he said. We thought it was time to bring it back. Shocking figures have revealed where the worst drivers are in neighbourhoods in the region. The data team at the Birmingham Mail compiled a map showing how many drivers have six or more points on their licence in postcodes across the West Midlands and the rest of the country. One area of Croydon is home to more bad drivers than anywhere else in the UK, with 1,870 drivers with six or more points in the CR0 postcode area alone. Meanwhile, closer to home, 
There are hundreds of such drivers in postcodes across Wolverhampton, with WV10 Wensfield and WV6 holding two of the top three spots, with 932 and 631 drivers with six plus points on their licence respectively, and Dudley just outside the top five behind West Bromwich with 419 drivers. Now it's time to test your knowledge as we have the quiz questions for this edition. And they're brought to us by Mina. Hello and welcome to this week's Flashback Quiz. All the answers you need can be found later in Flashback Rogers' Did You Know feature. But for now, these are your questions. Here we go. Question one. How large is the Newcomen steam engine? Question two. What's the name of the first locomotive to run in America? Question three. Who made the glass panes for the Crystal Palace? Question four. How many glass panes were used to construct the Crystal Palace? Question 5. Who organised the chain maker strike of Crudley Heath? And finally, question 6. Who first used the phrase black by day and red by night about the black country? I will be back with you later in the show, but for now, best of luck. Just those questions, Mina. I'll get my mind working on those. Up now, however, it's another block of local news. A former soldier from Stafford has climbed 12 mountains in less than a year to train for the Three Peaks Challenge, all completed with a fridge strapped to his back. Michael Copeland trekked 26 miles up Ben Nevis, Scarfell Pike and Snowdon whilst carrying the weight of a 25-kilogram fridge in an effort to raise money for a mental health charity. When training for the climb, the 38-year-old took the fridge up 15 mountains in 10 months and even took it to the gym with him, which he said resulted in several funny looks. Michael said he was inspired to take on the challenge to encourage people to talk about their feelings, describing the weight of the fridge as a metaphor for mental health. The father of two has so far raised more than £5,000 for the mental health charity Mind. He said, When I joined the army, it was all new because I joined as a kid. And then when I came out, I felt lost and I struggled a bit then. I didn't have that direction. Then I found bodybuilding, which gave me the structure and routine and discipline back. But when lockdown hit and the gyms had to close, it was the same feeling again. The idea of the fridge was almost to have a visual representation of the burden that mental health can have on us. It was a way for me to make people talk. It's done the job. I can't believe how far it has reached. When I first started this 10 months ago, I climbed Snowden with a fridge full of beer to raise awareness for mental health. I wanted to come up with a creative way to raise awareness for mental health. I've never actually done the Three Peak Challenge before this without a fridge, let alone with a fridge. So it was quite an achievement to actually do it. I was quite proud and emotional. Completing the climb in 23 hours and 50 minutes, Michael said he had to dig deep for motivation when climbing Snowden in the early hours of the morning with just a head torch to light the path in front of him. 
Michael, who is a lorry driver, added, Ben Nevis was okay. We did it in four hours and 19 minutes. And then it's a six and a half hour drive to Scarfell Pike from Ben Nevis. And my legs just didn't want to work. So that was really tough. But the real challenge was when we got to Snowdon at three o'clock in the morning and the heavens opened. The actual climb up Snowdon in the dark with a head torch was a really challenging moment. When we were going up Snowdon, we had an hour and 32 minutes to get back down to do it in 24 hours. So we actually ran down it when we could. I think that was a point where we were really struggling. I really had to dig deep then. I started to think about all the people sponsoring me and what I was doing it for. Postcards might feel like a thing of the past, but this one truly is, arriving an astonishing 66 years after it was sent. Staff at an independent school could not believe it when the postcard from a mother to one of their boarders finally arrived in the post. The postcard, addressed to a Miss D. Kerr, arrived at Adcote School, Shrewsbury, in the usual batch of morning mail delivered by the postman. While the modern postmark on the postcard is dated April the 21st, 2023, the pre-decimal penny and penny halfpenny stamps used to pay for its postage were issued in the 1950s. The original postage date, difficult to read after all these years, is believed to be June or July 1957. The postcard is written by the student's mother and describes how the girl's father was having no luck fishing while on holiday or a day trip. The colour photograph on the front of the Frith series postcard depicts Penhelic Harbour, Abadovi. It reads, Daddy and Bob have had no luck fishing so far, have come over here again this morning. Love from us both, Mummy. Records show that postage rates went up in October 1957, suggesting that the postcard, weighing less than one ounce, was sent before that date. The school is now appealing for help to trace the former pupil, who would now be 78, to unite her with the postcard that her mother lovingly sent her just a couple of months after she had begun life as an Adcote boarder. Delving into its old admission registers, the school has found that Miss D. Kerr was Denise Bronwyn Kerr, who attended the All Girls Day and Boarding School between May 1957 and July 1962. She had previously attended Knoll School in Kidderminster. The school believes her married name may now be Miles. My first reaction on seeing the postcard was complete disorientation, said Headmistress Diane Brown. I thought someone had sent me a vintage postcard, briefly thinking that you don't often receive postcards of any nature these days. When it dawned on me what had actually happened by looking at the pre-decimal stamps on the postcard, I was in complete shock. We would love to know who Dee Kerr is and unite her with the postcard sent by her mum all those years ago. If that postcard had been sent by my mum or dad, I'd be thrilled to receive it, even after all this time. I must say, I'm impressed with the Royal Mail's conscientious attitude. Someone has obviously found this postcard, possibly when a piece of furniture was moved, and instead of tossing it aside, they have honoured the commitment to deliver it, although a little later than expected. A British Jamaican man is hoping to honour his grandfather as he aims to join the Jamaican curling team at the 2026 Winter Olympics. 
residential care worker and father of three, Luke Samuels from Edinburgh, Scotland, but originally from Wolverhampton, took up the sport after watching the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics. Mr Samuels has dual nationality with Jamaica through his grandfather, Edwin Luther Samuels, who moved to Oxley, Wolverhampton, came with the first wave of Empire Windrush arrivals on June the 21st, 1948. Luke said, I've only been curling for about a year. I remember watching the Beijing Olympics with my wife and I said, I'm going to curl for Jamaica one day. She laughed, but the next day I got in touch with a group called Curling Jamaica and jumped on a beginner's course in Edinburgh. Luke joined the 37 Club, a Scottish curling group, before being tutored by a coach who was also in the club. The curler said, They are great there. One of the guys is a curling coach and he started to coach me and help me get better. It was honestly a bit like the film Cool Runnings, Curl Runnings, I think. The curler contacted the Jamaican curling team president, Ben Kong, who invited Luke to be part of the Jamaican curling team. Luke said, we are planning to qualify for the Italy Winter Olympics in 2026, which gives me three years to practice and get better. Luke credits his family as his strength to pursue professional curling, hoping to make him proud by representing Jamaica in the Olympics. Mr Samuel said, my grandfather came over to England on June the 21st, 1948, as part of the Windrush to help rebuild Britain. He was originally from Watt Town in St Anne, Jamaica. He settled in Wolverhampton and married my grandmother, Sylvia, who is originally from Wolverhampton. He added, One of my kids came up to me and said, when they grow up, they wanted to be on the same team as me. It's an amazing thing to hear that. All my family is centred around helping people. It's in our nature. My grandfather was a bus conductor and loved helping people and a lot of my family are in care. This is my way of helping. The curler hopes that more people will follow in his footsteps to discover their family history, going on to talk about its importance. Luke said, I would honestly encourage anyone to find out their family history. It's important to have that. I love that I can identify as both British and Jamaican. In a way, it gives me a lot of strength knowing what my ancestors went through and how strong they were. It's part of what makes me who I am. If Luke gets chosen to compete for Jamaica, he will become one of the first European curlers to compete in the Winter Olympics for the Jamaican team. He said, I would be one of the first in Europe. No European curlers are competing on the Jamaican side, so I would be the first. But I wouldn't be able to do this if it wasn't for my granddad coming from Jamaica to Wolverhampton. It will always be special to me. Visitors to RAF Museum Cosford can step back in time this May half term for 1940s week. The museum will be turning back the clock to a time when rationing, digging for victory and make do and mend were everyday occurrences. Home front craft workshops a classic war film series, trying on RAF uniforms of the era and a vintage fair are just some of the experiences on offer throughout the school break for the whole family. A wide range of craft workshops will encourage visitors of all ages to brush up on their needlework and crochet skills, learning how to reuse fabric to create new accessories. 
People can transform their recycled household items into a new home decoration, create a mini ribbon wreath using strips of fabric and have a go at making a needle case. They can also improve their machine sewing skills by making a tote bag and following a step-by-step guide to create a hand-sewn owl to take home. In the Dig for Victory zone, visitors will have the chance to learn how to grow their own vegetables and take home their own pea, bean or carrot plant. There will also be traditional Morris dancing, a ready steady ration workshop as well as an RAF uniform handling zone where people can dress up and take pictures. The 1940s week will culminate with a vintage fair on Friday the 2nd to Sunday the 4th of June, bringing together vintage retailers with a programme of live music and entertainment. A display of vintage vehicles and reenactment group in period settings will set the scene. Admission to the RAF Museum, 1940s Week and Vintage Fair is free, but charges apply for some of the activities. For more information on the event and to pre-book your arrival time, visit rafmuseum.org forward slash Midlands. More local news to follow, but now Pete's got a few ideas on how to help with living with sight loss. Beacon are having a low vision sale day on Tuesday the 23rd of May. We'll have lighting, magnifiers, filter glasses, clocks, TV glasses, all sorts of low vision equipment on sale from old stock and donated items. So if you'd like to grab yourself a bit of a bargain with some low vision equipment that may be able to help you in everyday life, why not pop down to our low vision centre here at the Beacon Centre on Tuesday the 23rd of May between 10am and 2pm for our low vision equipment sale. Coming up next on this week's edition of the Black Country Talking News, we have another block of local news. A pioneering woman who became one of the first female GPs in Wolverhampton has died at the age of 99. Dr Ruth Young died of old age on April the 18th in a care home in Hereford, having moved there from Tettenhall to be closer to her immediate family. Born Ruth Kamar in Penang, now Malaysia, in October 1923, she moved to the UK in 1934 and studied medicine at Glasgow University from 1941 to 1946. She spent all five months of her wartime university holidays working on a farm in Sussex in a land army role. Ruth then qualified MBCHB with a diploma in public health. She moved to Wolverhampton to join her future husband, RAMC war surgeon Henry Harry Young, who was appointed as a consultant surgeon in the newly formed NHS in 1948 at New Cross and the Royal Hospital. In 1949, she joined Dr William Wallace as a partner at 14 Dudley Road, working full-time and doing her share of on-call and home visiting. She then moved to a new purpose-built surgery at Duncan Street with Dr Garant Williams, where she worked, despite being a wife and mother, until she retired in 1986. She had a passion for women's health, including family planning, and was also a cytologist, studying slides with a microscope at the Royal Hospital for the newly introduced cervical screening service. When general practice had its own vocational training scheme, she was one of the first GP trainers, influencing the training of many young GPs, and was renowned for her holistic care. 
Retirement allowed her to increase her voluntary work, tirelessly fundraising and volunteer working for Compton Hospice, something that her and her husband had helped to set up. She had travelled extensively, was a keen tennis player until her mid-80s, a talented artist, seamstress and sugarcraft flower cake maker, amongst many other attributes and community clubs. Her funeral will be on May the 18th at St Jude's Church, with details from Jennings. He's the suspected fraudster who West Midlands' top detectives have been trying to find for years. To look at, Stephen Drinkwater doesn't appear like some menacing mastermind criminal smiling out from his image released by cops. Apparently, at a wedding or some other happy occasion, Drinkwater looks every inch the friendly family man, but appearances can be deceptive. He's one of the West Midlands' most wanted men and has been giving detectives sleepless nights for the last four years since he went to ground and hasn't been seen since. According to police, Drinkwater, who is originally from Wolverhampton, is a master manipulator. Detectives say the man in his mid-40s is wanted for a series of fraud offences that took place over a number of years. But where is he? That's the question police chiefs have been asking since October 2019. Drinkwater has the dubious honour of being the longest-serving member of the West Midlands Most Wanted list. A rogues gallery of suspected crooks police want to find for various offences. Some quickly come off it thanks to successful public appeals resulting in their capture. But the suspected fraudster has been on it for nearly four years, with cops seemingly no closer to catching him. It's possible he could be living under a false identity and be in another part of the country in a bid to evade capture. And for now, his whereabouts remain a mystery. Drinkwater's image has been viewed almost 122,000 times on the West Midlands Police website, but he remains a member of the most wanted list. Anyone with information is asked to contact DC Nigel Smith via live chat at west-midlands.police.uk between 8am and midnight or call 101 anytime. Very few people achieve what Michael Mickey Wernick did during his life. Not only did his family open Wolverhampton's first casino, he was also one of the UK's most successful poker players, and he encountered some particularly famous faces along the way. Mickey, as he was affectionately known, was a professional poker player from Wolverhampton who, following a long battle with cancer, passed away on April the 18th, age 78. And perhaps unsurprisingly, tributes to the man dubbed the legend of poker have been pouring in since his death. Mr Wernick championed the game throughout his life and was crowned the number one player in Europe in 2005. Born to a Jewish family on July 2nd, 1944 in Warsaw, Poland, the poker player moved to Wolverhampton shortly after the Second World War. After leaving Whitmore Secondary Modern School, Mr Wernick worked at the family business, known then as S. Wernick and Sons, with his father, Solly Wernick. He grew up a keen boxer, having been crowned the Midlands amateur champion at the age of 16, and even had the chance to meet Muhammad Ali on his visit to Birmingham in 1983. And he was in his father's corner 
when he stepped down as chairman of the family business in 1967 to open Wolverhampton's first casino, the Oasis Club, based at a hotel on Queen Street. The family were also the owners of two other venues in the city, including the Polynesian Casino on Darlington Street, which they opened in the late 70s, and a betting office on Worcester Street. Mr. Wernick was also a familiar face to many in the 1980s at the Monmore Green and Cradley Heath Greyhound Stadiums, where he regularly cashed bets. But it was later in life, when the second stage of his poker career began, when he began frequenting Las Vegas on a regular basis to compete against players from across the globe. Nicknamed the grandfather of poker due to his many years of experience, Mr. Wernick's skill led him to take home $100,000 after competing in the Grand Prix of Poker, which was introduced by the Golden Nugget Hotel in the 1980s. He also reached the quarterfinals in the 2003 World Heads Up Poker Championship, where he lost to the eventual winner, John Chanuto. Though it wasn't just on the poker scene where Mickey was thought of as the best, having been described by his daughter Vicky as a caring and loving father. She added, In my dad's later life, I always told him he was the richest man I knew because he was loved by so many people for all the right reasons. No wealth or fortune could ever buy the love that he received. He was the king of our hearts. Everyone who knew him knew he was so warm and family orientated. I know everyone says it's about their dad, but he really was a lovely dad. We had a very special relationship. He was always caring and considerate, thoughtful and loving. I don't know how to put it into words how he was. He was funny. He was everything in one. A lovely, lovely man. He always had a really good outlook on life. If he lost loads of money or things had gone bad, he just never gave up. He believed in people and helped people. He was very generous and kind. Even if he wasn't doing well and one of his friends was in a worse position than him, he always gave what he could. He's left a massive hole in our lives. He taught us to always do the best you could and always think positive. His cup was always half full and he sort of instilled that outlook into us to always look on the bright side of everything and believe in yourself and other people. Mickey has been featured in the Express and Star several times over the years, including once for the announcement of his marriage to Miss Helga Maria Coleman on August the 10th, 1967. A funeral service will be held to honour his life at the Sutton Coalfield Crematorium on May the 22nd at 3.15pm. Up now, it's trivia time, brought to us by Flashback Roger and his Did You Know feature. Hello again everyone. I don't know about you, but this year seems to be flying by. What with the coronation done and dusted, and two out of three bank holidays this month, we're steaming into June. Anyway, I've decided it's high time I had a trip to the Black Country Museum again, and it got me thinking about our heritage. Now then, did you know that? The Black Country built the world's first successful steam engine. The Black Country was the first place to successfully harness the power of steam and change the world in doing so. The Newcomen engine is the size of a house, and the Black Country Liver Museum has the world's only full-scale replica. 
and the Black Country put the first steam train on US soil. Built in 1828 by Foster and Rastrick of Stourbridge, the Stourbridge line was the very first steam locomotive to run in the USA. Foster and Rastrick made just four locomotives. Three, including the line, went to America. The fourth, the Agonoria, went to Lord Dudley's Shutend Colliery. The Black Country practically built the Crystal Palace. The glass and the majority of ironworks for the building that hosted the world-famous Grand Exhibition were both made right in the heart of the Black Country. At the time, the glass sheets used were the largest sheets ever made and were made by Chance Brothers in Smethwick. The glass was first blown as a cylinder, then split and rolled flat. There were 63,000 panes all told, 49 by 10 inches each, made in just 10 weeks and each handmade. It was incredible. But the smog and grime of the Industrial Revolution took its toll on the population. In 1841, the average age of death in the Dudley Parish was just 16 years and 7 months. An 1852 report states that it's the most unhealthy place in the country and brought the world's attention to the slave-like conditions that they worked in. And the black country fueled the introduction of the first minimum wage. Led by women's rights campaigner Mary MacArthur in 1910, she led the women chainmakers of Cradley Heath. The strike lasted 10 weeks until the last of the employers relented and agreed to higher pay. The leftover money from the strike fund funded the building of the Workers' Institute in Cradley Heath, which is now standing in the black country museum. The Black Country was first described as black by day and red by night by Eli Burritt, the American consul to Birmingham, who visited the Black Country in 1868 and said, The Black Country cannot be matched for vast and varied production by any other space of equal radius on the surface of the globe. Well then, I'm sure that some of you already knew some of these items, but I hope that there were some that you didn't. I know that there were some things that were new to me. Any road up look, I'm off. I'll pack my flask and bag a suck. Teddy Grays, of course, and get ready for my day out. In the meanwhile, though, I'll have a cup of tea and a slice of bread pudding. What else is there to say? Except bye for now. Ta-ra a bit. Ta-ra! Up now, we have to hear what the webfast in store for us. Brought to us, as always, by Mina. The weather this week ahead is forecast to be relatively dry, settled with sunny intervals. Temperatures are forecast to improve and we could see highs of 19, perhaps even 20 degrees over the weekend. UV levels are expected to be medium as we see some prolonged spells of sunshine. The sunrise and sunset times are 5am for the sunrise and 9.10pm for the sunset. Friday 19th of May is forecast to be dry with sunny spells. With a gentle breeze, temperatures are expected to hold up well at around 18 degrees. The sunshine looks set to stick with us as we head into the weekend, with Saturday and Sunday both forecast to be full of sunny intervals. Despite the wind picking up a touch, temperatures should remain very pleasant at around 19 degrees. On to next week and the dry weather will continue to dominate. It is forecast for settled spell of clear weather to remain in the region from Monday 22nd of May and continue right through to Thursday 25th of May. With just some gentle breeze, temperatures should continue to hover around 18 degrees. 
there is a slight risk of showers setting in on Tuesday 23rd of May, but these will be light and there will be plenty of sunny intervals breaking through. All in all, it looks like spring has finally arrived. So that's your forecast for this week. And as always, enjoy the weather. Cheers for that weather update, Mina. Up now, it's time to find out how our local football teams have been getting on. He's a Rolls-Royce of a player, is a phrase often bandied about by many pundits and fans alike. Wolves sure did not exude such quality in their dull and uninspiring defeat to Manchester United, but they did give their Bentley a test drive, and the winged bee was flying across to all corners to keep United at bay. Wolves may have lost 2-0, but several superb Bentley saves kept Julen Lopetegui's side in the game. Speaking after the game, the head coach praised the goalkeeper in what was his top-flight debut for an impressive display at Old Trafford. First of all, congratulations to him. He's 29 and he deserves his first match in the Premier League, Lopetegui said. He's worked hard to have this chance. He's a very good guy, a very good professional, and he deserved to play. He had a good match with three good saves. He was very calm. It's a good thing for him and I'm very happy for him. Lopetegui said before the game that he wanted to hand chances to some fringe players in the final three games, with Bentley handed that chance at Old Trafford. He's able to play with us and I wanted to see him. Of course, we made a big achievement for us in the last match, to stay up. We were at the bottom four months ago and now we have to change things to see different players. I have confidence in him. Wolves were much brighter in the second half and found space in forward areas but failed to capitalise or create any clear-cut opportunities. Despite the defeat and their poor away record haunting them once again, the travelling fans supported their side until the very end and applauded them for their efforts at full time. With the baggy season culminating last week, it's been a quiet week of reflection at the club. Off the pitch, there was welcome news for the family of Jeff Astle, with the landmark guidance on concussion in grassroots sport being released. Dawn Astle, daughter of the West Bromwich Albion legend, spoke of her pride at playing a part. The guidance announced by the government and titled, If in doubt, sit it out, means that anyone with suspected concussion must be immediately removed from football, rugby and other sports and rest for at least 24 hours. It also says the NHS 111 helpline should be called and players should not return to competitive sport for at least 21 days. The UK-wide guidelines are aimed at parents, coaches, referees and players. Jeff Astle died in 2001, aged 59, after years of suffering from chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE, and a coroner recorded a verdict of death by industrial disease in 2002, ruling that repeatedly heading heavy leather footballs had contributed to trauma to Jeff's brain. Dawn Astle, who has campaigned alongside her mother, Lorraine, for two decades for better understanding of head injuries and concussions, said it was positive to see the government finally putting guidelines in place. She said, We welcome the new concussion guidance for grassroots sport and it's really positive to see the UK government finally producing guidelines. So I would urge every player and participant and parent or guardian to read the document. We need to see two things happening now, focusing on preventing those head injuries in the first place by having less impact, less often with less force. 
Head injuries in sport and its associated immediate and long-term risk is a major public health issue and we need greater efforts to change the culture of sport to ensure that these guidelines are followed, possibly with an extensive public health campaign. It's been an awfully long time coming and I have to thank West Bromwich Albion fans who made a crescendo of noise and held up leaflets and have always supported us because they loved Dad. Have you done any good at the quiz this week? Well... Now's the time to find out, as we have the quiz answers. Hello, and here are your answers for this week's flashback quiz. Feeling confident? How will you score? Let's see. Question 1. How large is the new Cummins steam engine? And the answer... It's the size of a house. Question 2. What's the name of the first locomotive to run in America? And the answer, the Stile Bridge Lion. Question 3. Who made the glass panes for the Crystal Palace? And the answer here is Chance Brothers. Question 4. How many glass panes were used to construct the Crystal Palace? And the answer here is more than 63,000. Question 5. Who organised the claim makers strike of Cradley Heath? And the answer here is Mary MacArthur. And finally, question six. Who first used the phrase black by day and red by night about the black country? And the answer here is Ely Burritt. Did you get them all right? If not, not to worry, as I will be back next week to test you all again. Bye for now. Want to know how to get ahead in the garden for the coming season? Here's some top tips from the experts at MK Pulse magazine. TNF Soundings. Features from across the UK. This is Jan with some seasonal tips and ideas from the gardening expert at the MK Pulse magazine based in Milton Keynes. Sharing knowledge is always a positive and gardening is a prime example of an activity where communal learning leads to greater satisfaction. Unless, of course, you are trying to cultivate a prize-winning specimen for a competition. When it comes to flowers, the Hardy Plant Society, HPS, is a nationwide charity which promotes the joy of herbaceous plants, and the society's roots are all over, with more than 40 groups in all. It exists for people who love hardy perennials for their variety, colours, shapes, sizes and longevity. And also has a number of interest groups such as geranium and galanthus. Members support each other to grow better examples and different species. Margaret Pateman from Northampton is well invested in the HPS. She's been a member for 35 years. What drew you to perennials? The fact that many hardy herbaceous plants are deciduous means they disappear for several months at different times of the year in their dormant state, and even the evergreen ones tend to look a bit ragged in the off-season. 
Whether they are dormant in the summer or the winter, there's a feeling of anticipation when looking for the first green shoots and signs the plants are still alive. The excitement when an old favourite is seen to be emerging from the soil. And there is just as much pleasure attached to the expectation as there is to the actual flowering spectacle. And if things don't go as well as they might, perhaps due to marauding slugs or heavy feet, there's always next year to look forward to, Margaret told Pulse. There is an amazing variety of scents and colours, and most can be grown from seed, cuttings or division. Most people have different favourites depending on the time of year and are only too pleased to propagate them. With so many possibilities, which is Margaret's favourite of all the perennial flowers? To choose a favourite is like trying to choose a favourite child. Impossible. But if I could only have one, it would probably be Flor paniculata and various hybrids, she decides. Not only are the flowers lovely and have a long season with different varieties, but they smell absolutely gorgeous. If only I could find it made into a perfume. I once saw a hummingbird moth with a white flock and it was a perfect picture. You must belong to the National Society in order to join the regional groups. Perhaps you like the idea but are apprehensive about being the new flower in the bed, so to speak. Worry not, says Margaret. Dig in and grow your confidence. Apart from its shows, gardening is not competitive and most people are only too happy to give beginners the benefit of their wisdom and help out with both advice and plants, she promises. TNF Soundings So that's it for another edition of the Black Country Talking News. A reminder to our CD listeners who have received CDs in padded envelopes that you don't need to send anything back to us. If you have a sight loss tip or someone you would like to wish a happy birthday to, just say hello to. Maybe even a poem or talking book you would like reviewed, then please get in touch with us at the Beacon Centre. Call 01902 880 Email bctn at beaconvision.org or write to us at the Black Country Talking News, Beacon, Wolverhampton Road East, Wolverhampton, WV4 6AZ. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening and thank you to all our supporters, donators and volunteers who without their support will be unable to run this free service. Please note the information and views expressed in this recording does not necessarily represent the views of Beacon or Talking News and were accurate at the time of recording. Mentions of goods and services does not imply endorsement and whilst every care is taken to supply accurate information, Beacon and Talking News do not undertake liability for any errors. So it's goodbye from all of us, stay safe, have a good week and we look forward to bringing you next week's edition of the Black Country Talking News. Ta-ra!